Hello, and welcome to Conversations Towards Reconciliation with Alderville First Nations Chief Tainar Simpson. I'm your host, Robert Washburn. This program is coming to you from the Williams Treaty Territory and Northumberland 89.7 FM. For the next 30 minutes, we will bring you important stories and issues facing Indigenous and non-Indigenous people living here in Northumberland County and across the country. It is your chance to become better informed, more engaged, and empowered as we all move together on the path to reconciliation. So join us for the next step on this journey. I am so pleased once again to have back Tainar Simpson, Chief of the Alderville First Nations. Great to see you again, Tainar. Great to be here as always. Thank you, Robert. Recently, CBC News broke a story about a former Cree Grand Chief who spent four days in an emergency room hallway. Now, Matthew Muckash and his granddaughter Jade traveled from northern Quebec to Montreal to get medical help. Now, the story says that while he was waiting in the hall, someone else got a room. Now, there's a lot of details I would like to explore, but first, can I get your initial reaction to this story? My initial reaction is that um, we have a lot of uh, communities that are remote, uh, they're flying communities, and they're not getting the proper medical attention that they need. So this is why they're basically medically evacuated to uh, the cities, to hospitals that can supposedly take them in and help them. Uh, my big question is, if they knew he was coming through medical evacuation, why was he put into the emergency room? It doesn't make sense that uh, that's a walk-in uh, form of treatment. There should have been already communication in a room set up waiting to take him. Uh, now, is that a, a problem for just Indigenous people or is that a, a larger problem for everybody because of the state of the uh, the healthcare in Canada? That's the, the big question that um, we would need to answer uh, in this issue. To that point then, does this happen regularly or not? Uh, unfortunately, it does happen regularly, and I've got firsthand um, knowledge about it as well. I had um, a family member who was, uh, they were only a, a couple months old, and they were flown to Montreal for heart surgery. Uh, now, they were wonderful at that Montreal hospital, but you hear other situations where it didn't turn out as well, uh, where there have been um, uh basically racism in the rooms and uh, that led to uh, poor treatment and sometimes even death in, in certain instances. So um, it, it's hard to point to a specific cause, but there's layers of issues that um, it all depends on how many of these compounding issues are going to affect you on a specific visit that could add up to a, a dangerous uh, level of uh, a lack of care. Now, you mentioned racism. What What are you basing that on? I can't recall exactly the the name of the individual, but there was um, a couple of years back, there was a, a, a First Nations lady who was in the hospital and she was video recording the help she was getting and she was able to um, uh, get on video nurses making fun of her, uh, talking about her behind her back and uh, that patient eventually passed away and it became a, a big issue to to know that this is how the the nurses were treating her uh, before her death now in the story that the cbc gave it, it said that the emergency room was pretty busy that he was moved from a spot he had a room at one point and then uh he was moved out of that room four days and his granddaughter said in the piece that there needs to be more compassion and patience 
she was never given a really a good reason as to why they were moved into that space. And she also said that she could just not get a cab and go home. You know, she, they have to wait for a flight. So can you explain a little bit more about the system that is used and how it functions? What what exactly happens? Well, I guess uh, when you're evacuating someone from a northern or remote community, uh, there really isn't any health services available for them. Uh, this is where the main problem is. If there was, like, say, hospital or medical treatment closer, they wouldn't need to take on this large journey. But so that by the time they've gotten to the hospital, they might already have been on the traveling for a couple of days at this point. So they're going to be depleted from a health point, uh, from an emotional point. So they really should be accepted in at that point at the source into the final level of care where they're supposed to be. So uh, it, to me, it's just, um, it, it's, I can't understand how they would have been just put into the emergency room where you stayed for four days, basically two meters away from the reception desk. Uh, that That's confounding to me. And it was everyone treated that way. Like you got to understand that uh, Indigenous people are going to think that this is just a continuation of how they've been treated in the past. But we do know that it's a, it's a wider issue across Canada, um, but it's definitely more uh, so when it's a northern uh, remote person coming in um, who who really thinks that they're going to be getting uh, top-notch treatment. After the four days, he was discharged and he was sent to a hotel for Cree patients in Montreal. But one of the concerns is that patients are often sent where people only speak English or French and not Cree. How could things be made more culturally safe for Indigenous people in that kind of situation? Well, I think it'd be good to have like liaison people uh, in the hospital itself, or at least to someone who can uh, liaison uh, with the hospital and the patient in question. So if you don't understand the language, you're not going to understand what they're talking about, what the diagnosis is, what the potential treatment is, uh, what you're supposed to be doing. So um, it, it makes it very difficult for the patient to understand what their level of care is and what they're supposed to be doing afterwards. So it, it's good that they went to a place where um, there was Cree speaking people, but was their medical practitioners able to speak Cree to tell them what was going on with their diagnosis? So that's the big question. The article left a lot of unanswered questions about follow-up and what exactly he was being treated for and, and how did he get the proper level of treatment while he was waiting in the hallway? Uh, these are questions that we can't really speculate on, but uh, hopefully we learn more in the future. Is that kind of a system, though, is that realistic, given all the financial and other shortfalls within the healthcare system? Well, I think um, if we roll it back even further, if this uh, individual, um, former Grand Chief, if he had been able to, say, have a virtual meeting with the doctor, when I hear that's happening more and more, where a doctor can treat you over the the like how we're speaking right now on Zoom, if you could meet with the doctor that way, they could maybe get some ideas uh, and then have more of a care plan for you when you do arrive, say, in several days. So we know that uh, a lot of these um, you know, mer uh, emergency medical evacuations probably could be um, maybe not evacuated if the doctor had met with them in the in the uh, previous, uh, I guess, initial intake. Um, that's something that could help out. So there's a lot of ways you can use modern technology uh, and, and you know video conferencing um, solutions.
How do we overcome these logistical problems? Are there healthcare services in these communities? And if there are, what are they like? Well, I think it all depends. Uh, the size of the community will depend on the level of care you're going to be able to get. So a larger First Nations community is going to have more uh, spending on health. They're going to have probably a, a more um, uh, full ensuite of uh, health resources and services in their health services building. Uh, but the smaller, more remote communities in some cases aren't going to have that level of uh, capacity. And uh, every First Nation goes about it differently. I do understand that there are efforts to create a hospital in Quebec in the far north, but I understand also that it's not scheduled to open until 2026. Is is that sufficient? Uh, I think with the date of 2026, that, that's probably good enough if you're uh, looking at long term. It's not going to help the individuals for the next couple of years. Uh, I'd be more concerned with uh, how... Um, uh, how this new hospital was, is going to look. Is it going to be uh, uh, enough beds to take care of everybody? Uh, are you going to have the top-notch doctors? It, it's got to become a priority. It can't just be a second thought of the what maybe the services you're going to offer. I'd like to bring things back to our area, to Northumberland, and ask you what health care services are available mm -hmm. to members of Alderville? Uh, Alderville tries to offer a large suite of services. We have um, our health services building um, where we uh, do uh, annual vaccinations. We did all of the COVID vaccination. There's um, a nurse practitioner who comes in. Uh, we have um, a doctor who comes in every two weeks. Uh, we offer like foot care for diabetes. Um, we offer traditional um, healing workshops and uh, we also have a, a PSW program that uh, we're currently revamping, but uh, we have uh, two full-time and two part-time PSW staff. Now, they're not medical uh, practitioners per se, but they do um, allow our elders to be a bit more independent in their homes when they come in. They, uh, they can make sure that they're taking their medication. They can't um, uh, dose out their medication, but if it's in a blister pack, they can say, here, this is your mealtime um, dosage. Uh, they clean the house. They just make it so that um, there's extra eyes on the individual. Um, so, so that's really good that we offer that. And we have um, uh, constant programming coming out of the, the health services uh, department in Alderville. Um, usually depending upon needs. But if you want to make a, an appointment to see a doctor, uh, you will get a time slot probably within the next couple of weeks just to make sure. So it's something that we've taken advantage of uh, myself uh, and family personally. Have there been any concerns raised with the treatment given by either Northumberland Hills Hospital or Campbellford Memorial Hospital? Um, I'm not going to say that there haven't been issues in the past. Uh, so if one of our members does need to go, we actually have a medical van where we will transport the patients to the hospital. Uh, we do know that uh, Northumberland Hills Hospital has been uh, very good with us in the last few years. Um, so they, they've uh, definitely taken on the Indigenous aspect of things very well. They have a reconciliation wall when you go in. Um, and they've, uh, we've met with the, uh, the director a couple of times and she's very, um, uh, open to our ideas of how, you know, they can better improve their services to us. But of course there's the, the emergency room wait that you get everywhere. And Campbellford is a little bit better for the, the wait times. Um, uh, but maybe now that I've said it, it won't be because people will go to Campbellford. <laughs>
Finally, one of the things that we did talk about earlier was the culturally appropriate treatment. What efforts are being made outside of Alderville to ensure that when uh, people from the community are seeking help, that they're being treated in a culturally appropriate manner? Well, I think it comes down to probably how the uh, visitors would be um, allowed into the room. So sometimes they limit the number or they say, if you're not family, you can't come in. Uh, whereas for us, we have traditional uh, healers who would come in um, that might not necessarily be direct family and they should be allowed in. There's uh, like smudging that uh, ideally would be allowed. Um, a lot of times they say, well, that's smoke and that's not good for you. But our medicines, especially the, what we smudge, our cedar, it really, it's known to be purifying. So it actually is medicinal. Uh, so I think some understanding about that, how our traditional medicines uh, should be, um, you know, brought in a bit more than they already are. Please stay tuned to hear more conversations towards reconciliation with Tanar Simpson. This is Northumberland 89.7 FM, your local source for news and information. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I hope you're enjoying our chat today. I'm Robert Washburn, and I'm here with Tanar Simpson, the chief of Alderville First Nations. We are so glad you're joining us. The national chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Cindy Woodhouse, is trying to make inroads with Conservative leader Pierre Polyev, hoping to forestall the tensions and angst that marked the party's last time in power. Now, a lot of tension is left over from the Idle No More movement. First, can you talk about the relationship between Indigenous people and the previous Conservative government under Stephen Harper? Um, well, I guess to say things were bad would be an understatement. Uh, Stephen Harper didn't seem to have any um, will or drive to um, support what should have been a nation-to-nation -nation, relationship with uh, between the Crown and the First Nations. Yeah, he had a very headstrong approach uh, to how he thought the federal government should be dealing with the First Nations. Um, the thing is, is that he didn't make any bones about it. He basically said up front that this is what I'm going to do, and he did it. Uh, so in a lot of ways, you know, we kind of appreciated the honesty that he wasn't going to be very helpful for us. Uh, whereas, say, some liberal governments are going to say that they're going to give you the world, but then end up doing nothing, which... Um, it almost hurts a little bit more because they've uh, they've made promises that they're not keeping. Wasn't it Stephen Harper that issued an apology for the system in 2008? Uh, yes. So the TRC had been um, going on for a while. That was, uh, I can't remember which government created it, but uh, he definitely would have been the government that was funding it, uh, funding the report. And I remember by the time the recommendations came out, uh, that was right around when um, Trudeau was uh, coming in and he said that he was going to honor all 94 recommendations. And a lot of them have been uh, fulfilled, but not all of them. Uh, Trudeau also said that there was going to be a nation to nation relationship, but obviously he didn't know what that meant because he's done the opposite of that. Uh, really, to us, um, whether it's conservative or liberal, it hasn't really made too much of a big difference in the past. There's been uh, positives and negatives from both sides uh, over the years. The Idle No More movement grew out of a reaction to Harper. What is the Idle No More and what did it hope to achieve? 
Well, I think Idle No More, it's, uh, we've always been uh, very upset with the way we've been treated by the, the Crown and its um, obligations to upholding treaty rights in Canada. So I think um, uh, we saw that there was a degradation of our rights to a point where we could no longer be quiet. Uh, we couldn't just sit at the negotiation table anymore and hope that uh, we were going to be heard and listened to. So I think the frustration that grew out of that is what uh, led to the Idle No More movement. It was picked upon by elders, by youth, uh, and by everyone. So it's still going, the movement, it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, but uh, we'll see where it goes in the future. That leads into my next question, because there was a period where it was very high profile and there was some you know, general public consciousness about what was going on. Now, some people might say it has disappeared or at least gone into the shadows. Is there a reason for that? And how active is it today? Um, it's still very active. We have uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of Land Back, which is um, uh, a movement that's saying, you know, just uh, give the land back to the First Nations. And it takes on a lot of different flavors of perhaps the government uh, giving surplus lands uh, back to us or or individuals who have uh, lots of land in traditional territory, um, signing it over to First Nations. We've seen uh, evidence of all of that. Um, but with uh, how we're seeing with Bill C-53 coming in, uh, with the second generation cutoff rule dwindling our numbers, like it's uh, it's definitely uh, on the back burner, but it's solely going to be on the front burner. And uh, there's a lot of issues that are, are going to be feeding this movement again in the near future. Some of the issues that are being raised that Woodhouse has identified are mainly environmental. She says these are key concerns. How would you characterize the current conservative government as it pertains to environmental issues? Well, we know here in Ontario that they, especially with the green belts, uh, the conservatives haven't been uh, very good with their consultation uh, and inviting us to the table to discuss this. They basically move ahead with uh, what they want to do and then and they face the consequences. And in the case of the green belt, they had to backtrack. Um, now, in terms of the federal uh, conservatives, what would their government look like? I think that uh, it wouldn't be too far off. We know that uh, from previous statements that uh, Pierre Polev has uh, made, he doesn't have a lot of um, respect for Indigenous people, uh, our history, and how we've been treated in the past. Um, uh, I'm not like I was in Ottawa for 18 years, uh, and it coincided with uh, Pierre Polev uh, coming up in uh, as an MP in Ottawa, and I was uh, privy to all the comments he was making along the way, uh, and I was just. Uh, shocked, disappointed, disgusted by the things he had said over his career as a young MP and coming up. So uh, personally, I'm not very uh, optimistic about how he's going to move forward. Uh, he's got a lot of history and a lot of, um, I'm going to say, hate towards First Nations that uh, that he really has to make amends for. Polyev has proposed a resource revenue sharing agreement between uh the federal government and indigenous communities. Is this a good thing? Absolutely, yes. If he's serious, then that's a very good uh, step in um, uh, bringing reconciliation to Canada. 
for too long, uh, we've seen our lands being abused and uh, ravaged by industry, uh, tearing down all of our trees, um, you know, taking out the grasslands and putting in farmlands, which is good to a degree. But uh, we've never really seen any monetary gain from the destruction of our lands, the um, uh, using our lands for industry, commercial purposes, residents that's all been denied to us. So if we could move forward in a way where we uh, actually get to have some sort of revenue from the funds being pulled out of the lands, then then that's great because these are our territorial lands. We still own these lands. Uh, and it's just a matter of it being recognized by the crown that we uh, should also be uh, producing revenue off of them. One of the critiques that I've seen about the revenue sharing proposal is that it doesn't really address bigger concerns about restitution. Can you explain why that's significant? Um, so I would say that uh, moving forward, yes, it's great to have these partnerships where we are revenue sharing, entering into, um, say, uh, uh, even ownership agreements with the proponents on some of their projects. But when you go back to restitution for the previous, that's a whole new uh, bucket. Uh, we know that billions and billions of dollars have been taken off of our lands. Uh, all of the old growth forest that was here in Ontario is, is gone. Uh, it's been logged out a few times. And it's just, um, what would that number look like? Uh, it, probably break the government if they were to actually pay us what our uh, proper share would be. So uh, this is when you'd have to move into the negotiation table and see what a number like that would uh, uh, would look like. Does Alderville have any revenue sharing agreements with business or governments? Um, in the old ways, we would have like royalties. I'm going to call them minimal royalties where... Uh, yes, you might get uh, some some timber uh, funds or something. Um, but now with uh, in the era of duty to consult and all uh, industrial proponents, commercial proponents, anytime they want to uh, do a new development on our territory, they must first consult with us. And to get our buy-in, you know, we we have started to enter into agreements, partnerships with these companies where we do get uh, partial ownership up to 50%, sometimes even more uh, potentially. So this is the very beginning of us starting to take control of our own revenue streams in a way that... Um, uh, you know, even from a Canadian taxpayer point of view, if we had enough uh, uh, ownership in the businesses that are on our territory, we wouldn't need, uh, well, Indian Affairs for one. Uh, so that that makes the, the problem right there. Like, if we don't need uh, Indian Affairs, we don't need the crown uh, to keep our revenues going, then that gives us a lot more autonomy, which is something that they're going to be scared of. So um, in a lot of ways, they want to keep us um you know, at their beck and call, but this revenue sharing is our future. This is how we need to move forward as a nation. Poliev has not attended any uh, Assembly of First Nations meetings, nor has he made any effort to meet with Indigenous leaders in large groups. However, he has met with individual leaders. Is this significant? And does he need to be start meeting with the AFN? Well, he definitely does. Um, my guess is, uh, from what I spoke about earlier, about all of his uh, comments he's made in the past about uh, Indigenous people, how we should have been lucky that uh, we were in residential schools. We learned a lot. They paid for education. They took care of us. These are all things that he's said in the past. 
So he knows that he wouldn't be coming into a very welcome environment if he stepped into one of these uh, conferences. So I see why he hasn't uh, come to the table yet, uh, because we all have a piece of our mind we would like to give to him. So if he is does come, he would have to have a pretty big apology in hand. Can these ongoing tensions be resolved? Yes, they can. If uh, if um, the Conservatives get into power in the next election, we absolutely have to come to the table. Um, whatever government's in power, provincially or federally, we sit down at the table. We try to do the absolute best we can, uh, negotiating our differences, trying to come to um, you know, terms with any disagreements we might have. This is just uh, responsible government. This is how things are done. So if uh, he does get into power and he's the next prime minister, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. We're going to say, hey, let's sit down. Let's let's work on these issues. We might be surprised, um, but we might not be. Uh, but we got to try. Tanner, you and I have talked about some very serious issues, but I know there's lots going on in Alderville. Can you share with us some of the things that have been happening over the past month and some of the things that are coming up? Okay, well, we've had lots of exciting activities, um, but uh, if we want to look forward to the future, I've got quite a number of announcements that uh, I know our uh, members would be uh, happy to know about. Uh, most of this information can be found in our newsletter. Um, but if you have always wanted to learn how to ice fish on February 24th from 1 to 4 on Vimy Ridge, uh, we're going to have some ice fishermen show us the ropes. And we'll, we know that a lot of the ice has melted. So hopefully it refreezes and we're able to, to pull that off. Um, uh, let's see. I also want to remind all of our members that March 7th is the deadline for the water compensation. Get those um, uh, applications in. If you're representing your children, you need to make sure you have a birth certificate to show that you are their parent. Um, on March 8th, 9th, and 10th, uh, we have Chad Cowie coming to the administration building, and he's looking to tell Alderville's story. So if you have, um, uh, if you're an elder or anybody who's got a story about Alderville and uh, things culturally uh, appropriate that he might want to know about, uh, you're invited to come and, and speak with him, and he's going to produce a nice uh, uh, history about us. Uh, and he's from a neighboring um, a First Nation in Hiawatha. Uh, we also have a new... Um, uh, house that we're putting up for sale it's actually not new but we've renovated it so there's a three-bedroom home available and if you are interested in looking for a home february 29th is the deadline to apply uh, for it and also march 20th is the deadline for post-secondary funding if you would like to attend post-secondary school make sure you get your application in the health building is doing immunization all month uh, so for uh, any immunizations you might be behind on please feel free to come out we're having a ribbon skirt uh, making workshop on February 23rd, 1.30 to 5.30. Uh, please contact Vicki Niles if you're interested in attending. Uh, and a couple of big things coming up. There's uh, the men's uh, big drum teaching on February 14th and the 28th at Hilltop. And uh, there's also the women's uh, hand drumming on February 21st. So if you've been looking to get into a drum group, uh, please uh, feel free to attend. We're always looking for new uh, people to come in. Uh, also for the, the women, Anishinaabe Kwe, on February 22nd, there's a full moon ceremony uh, that we're um, bringing back. So uh, the last one didn't happen, but this one uh, should be well attended. And uh, just a reminder that every Thursday in February, we're having an open craft making session and regalia making. So that's 4.30 to 8.30 at the hilltop 
facility. So please come on down if you've got a, a project you've been working on and haven't had time to finish or you've been caught up and not being able to finish it, come uh, to the regalia making and they'll be able to see you through the rest of the way. And uh, men's night is February 15th at the ACC. So six to nine, there's going to be axe throwing. And uh, we also throw in a bunch of uh, health tidbits as well. So we call it men's night, but really it's men's health night. And uh, finally, March 11th uh, is uh, family bingo. Uh, contact the reception if you're interested in attending for a bingo night. Lots and, going uh, on. Lots going on. Holy cow. <laughs> I want to thank Alderville First Nations Chief Tainar Simpson for talking to me today. I want to thank you for joining our conversation, and I hope you enjoyed this time to learn more about what's going on, the stories and issues facing Indigenous people living in Northumberland and elsewhere. That's all for this week. I'm Robert Washburn. Join us again next time for Conversations Towards Reconciliation with Tainar Simpson. <laughs>